Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Following the theme of our current deep dive, biodiversity, and the non-human world as a whole, Today's guest has his degree in political ecology and has dedicated his life to the land conservation and preservation. He has worked with several organizations in this capacity, including volunteer work at the Great Baikal Trail in Russia, program director at the Tahoe Baikal Institute, and is currently the program director at Backcountry Land and Trust in Alpine. The commitment to this work is tireless and met with challenges from every direction. In addition to his professional work, our guest is also the proud father of a super cool 10-year-old. Without further delay, we are excited to welcome to today's show, John Green. Hi there. Thanks for having me. We are excited to have you. Yeah, John. We have been super interested in kind of talking about things that are different than just the regular diversity topics. And so one of the things we love to do is get your personal story including your experiences that you're willing to set the tone for kind of why you're passionate about this topic. And you can start as far back in your memory as you can think of. Sure. Okay. Well, let me just start by saying that um, I I love that you're featuring biodiversity and uh, the environmental perspective in the sort of umbrella of diversity, because I think a lot of folks might keep that focused on human and cultural diversity, but biodiversity is really important. We share the planet with billions of other species, and um, it's good to take them into account. There's a a huge part of the world that is non-human. So I'm glad you guys are focusing on that, and I'm happy to talk to you about it today. Um, I'll give you the short version of my bio, which, you know, to help it make sense how I got involved in the environmental world. I grew up in New Hampshire, spent 20 years in in the White Mountain State, and um, grew up around lakes and mountains and the seacoast and forests, and spent you know most of my childhood playing outside until the lights came on. You know that's kind of what we did, and so I think there is an inherent love of nature just from my circumstances growing up, but it really took off and. Um, kind of propelled me into working in the environmental field when I started traveling um, as an adult, uh, started moving around the country and, and the world, seeing other, other places. And what really got me interested in the environmental world is uh, working in national parks. So uh, I had worked in, uh, I worked at the Grand Teton National Park. That was my first park that I went to um, as an employee. I worked on Mount Hood for a winter. I eventually made my way up to Olympic National Park and uh, worked in Washington up there for a couple of different seasons at Lake Crescent Lodge and, and kind of in and around Olympic, the Olympic Peninsula. And, uh, and it really just got my attention. Uh, big, really big wild nature, um, wildlife habitat. And human interactions, you know, how do we interact with those with those areas, those big parks that we all know and love? Um, so I I started studying that. I went to uh, Evergreen while I was up in Washington. I got my degree, and then I started um, working at the organizations that were mentioned at the top of the show. Made my way down to California. Uh, lived in Lake Tahoe, not a national park, but another just natural treasure. One of one of our amazing Great Lakes in the world. And now I'm down here in San Diego and, and taking care of uh, nature preserves down here. So it's been, it's been a really interesting journey. 
but it's sort of started environmental and and sort of stayed that way in different different tones. I remember. So I listeners will know probably that I'm in New Hampshire as well. And so someone I heard this mentioned on a podcast, and I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but I have a client that's up north, and so when I drive through the notch, I paid attention last time I did, and I'm like, wow, because they said it's just so awesome to just look around you and consider all of the untouched nature. It's actually a little bit terrifying also, but <laughs> yeah, um, I happen to agree. And and I what I think is deepening your understanding is to not only see the untouched nature, but to see the fingerprints that are on it. And and that takes a sophisticated understanding. Um, if you've ever walked through the forest in New Hampshire and seen an old stone wall that was surrounded by trees. I think that's a really interesting example because that stone wall wasn't built in the forest. It was built on a farm. It was built to differentiate one person's farm from their neighbor's farm. And that means the trees were cut. That means that lamb land was tilled and then it grew crops and that a farmer invested enough to move all those rocks into a wall and then gone long enough that the whole forest came back around the wall. And so I think that type of history exists in all, all these places. You just have to look for it, know what you're looking for, be willing to see it, and then try to understand that history. Um, and you realize that, that humans are intrinsically tied up with land and that we can either make it better or make it worse, but our impacts will be there. So uh, kind of on that note, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it makes me think of the wildfires because I remember when I was in San Diego and we had a large, large wildfire that came pretty close to where we lived. And then after, you know, six months to a year after, um, there's a mountain that I would hike and it was just so cool to see how everything would grow back. Now, I'm not an advocate of wildfires as a general rule, but, but how, what you're saying is how nature can rebound and heal itself and rise from the very real ashes. Super cool. That's exactly so right. What you do as a conservationist or working for the Back Country Land and Trust, a lot of words, sorry. <laughs> um, can you give us an idea, like a glimpse into what the day to day life looks like for you in that field? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because I, I do think that private land conservation is generally misunderstood in the United States. Everybody kind of gets the idea of a national park or a national forest a city park, you know, a playground for the kids. Everybody understands that. Um, it, the government owns it. It's owned by a parks department, or in the case of National Parks Department of the Interior, which has the National Park Service. Um, it's paid for with our tax money, paid for sometimes by user fees. You pay your 20 bucks to get into the national park. Everybody kind of gets that idea. But private conservation is, is a little bit of a different thing. And um, it's not a small piece of the puzzle. There are 1,600 land trusts in the United States. Collectively, um, all of those land trusts have saved a land area the size of all six New England states combined, spread out over the whole uh, 50 states. And, and land trusts like the Nature Conservancy are usually the most familiar to people. That's the biggest land trust in the world. And they work all over the globe. And their goal is to buy land, protect land, 
um, manage land and restore habitats on land and water. Actually, the Nature Conservancy and some other conservancies work on aquatic environments. But the land trust environment is a big player in how we save land and water resources, cultural resources for wildlife and also for recreation. And each land trust has its own mission, has its own region. Some of them are very localized. Some of them are 100% volunteer. Um, others like ours are, you know, small. We have a few staff. And then there are others with dozens of staff members and multi-million dollar budgets. But um, the land trust that I work for here is called the Backcountry Land Trust. Um, it's one of several in San Diego County. And we work on the southeastern portion of the county. So we're based in Alpine, which is about 30 miles east of downtown San Diego. And we work from here east to the National Forest and then south down to the border. So that's kind of our region. We sort of focus on um, the southeastern part of uh, south central and southeastern part of the county. And um, we currently have 4,500 acres in conservation. So that's land that we own that we manage and each each particular property has its own um, objectives its own management plan but in general the mission is to save open space to keep it from being developed and then to utilize that land for the public benefit in some way so in some cases that's purely wildlife habitat uh, some cases that's about a view shed so that you've uh, not impeded a view with buildings and such and then in other cases, we allow uh, the public to access the preserve uh, for hiking, mountain biking, and horseback riding. So if you didn't do this, you know, what would the future look like? Basically, can you kind of prioritize what this means for us and why it's so important that it's done? That's an excellent question, too. Um, you know, let's let's go back to that number of, of 1,600 land trusts securing an acre, uh, an area the size of New England. If that land was not saved, let's say those land trusts didn't exist and hadn't saved that land, that would be the same number of acres as all six New England states, potentially up for development. And that development could be farmland, ranch land, uh, strip malls, housing developments, you name it, could be any type of development, but that land would be suddenly on the market, available for development. With it in conservation, now, each property is different, but as a general rule, conservation land is, is undevelopable at some level. Typically, the development rights have been stripped away, a conservation easement has been put on the property, and the land uh, has to stay as open space or some type of a functional wildland, habitat, recreation. Sometimes you'll see things like a nature center. Um, that's not an incompatible use. So there's a certain level of development. But for instance, uh, the, the main property that I manage here in town in, in San Diego is called Wrights Field. That was all planned to be a golf course. There was a developer with a plan. I just saw the map. It was a huge golf course with houses around and a clubhouse and a, and a restaurant. And that's in San Diego County where there's hardly any water. Um, you know, we touched on the wildfire issue very briefly and, you know, that's driven by our dry climate down here. So for them to have gone and watered in a golf course was pretty short-sighted. Uh, I think some thought foolish and, um, as a classic community versus developer story, 
The folks that started the land trust uh, fought that, sued the developer, found endangered species, and won. And we ended up with a nature preserve instead of a golf course. Now, I think that that was very long-sighted, that those folks had a vision. They worked incredibly hard, and they saved this place for future generations. So any land that we can put aside as wildland, as open space at some level, not only benefits the environment, not only benefits the flora and fauna that can make these places home, but it benefits us because we need nature too. Uh, and so, so the private conservation movement, the land trust movement is a huge part in that. And if they weren't there, we would be missing millions of acres of conservation. So going, rewinding just a little bit, if we've, if anybody has been out on a trail and they've seen like a placard, like that indicates that it is a preserved land. Cause you, you said that some of these are used for public areas, you know, like walking trails, hiking trails, things like that. What would you like people to acknowledge if they see something like that? Yeah, I think I think the very first thing that you have to ask anytime you go on a trail is who owns this land, who manages this land, and how do they pay for it? Because we tend to think that these places are just free. We tend to think, oh, well, there's a trail and I can just go down it. But the reality is that all the land is owned. There is no just random land out there without an ownership on it in 2021. Right. I mean, people even own the stars. (laughs) People even own their airspace. There's everybody owns uh, all all land area is owned. And that means somebody has to manage it and nothing is free. So I would encourage anytime anybody steps on the trail to ask those questions. Who owns this and how do they pay for it? That starts to really help to unpack the, the situation on the ground. And maybe just a little plug if they like it. How can they help? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Because once you once you ask that question, well, how do they pay for this? If you didn't pay to go on that trail, then somebody else is paying to take care of that trail. Um, and so that's where uh, you know user fees start to come in, and and it's a delicate balance, right? But when you pay your twenty bucks to go to the national park, that helps them take care of the park, right? Um, do I want to pay forty dollars to go to the park? Not necessarily. But at some level, everybody has to raise the funds to manage their land. Or if you don't, you end up with deteriorating conditions. Your, your trails uh, are unmaintained. They start to erode. They start to get overgrown. Uh, you, you start to roll your ankle when you hike on those trails. Uh, nobody's cleaning up the trash. That's going to be a problem. You're not going to enjoy that hike as much. So, so con- making a contribution in some way to the places that you love uh, is an incredibly important step. Once you get past those initial questions of who owns this, who pay- how do they pay for this, the next question is, how can I help? And that may not be cash money. That can be donation time. Uh, volunteers are critical in maintaining our open spaces. So, so I would encourage everybody, if you're already past the level of, hey, I know who owns my local trail, I know who takes care of my park, and I know how they pay for it, Try to find a way to engage and, and give back to the places you love. I think that's such I think that's such an important point because people forget some of these details. But I will say that 2020 was a remarkable period in kind of re-recognizing that. So first of all, just what happened in terms of the parks getting overrun with trash and things like that when nobody was there to take care of it. But what did you what was your I'm trying to decide how to say this. How did you feel about 
how the earth repaired itself in such a short period of time. What was that like watching 2020 for you from your position and what you do? It's a good question. And, and, you know, not one that I think I can give a really in-depth answer to. I'll, I'll try it, but we're only, we're only one year out and sort of less than one year out from COVID. Um, but we, we've only had a few months of, of looking back and saying, Hey, these were the effects. This is what happened. Right. I mean, we don't, we're going to look back on this at some point in the future and say, here's what happened at this period in history. But right now we're living it. And so I think at some level, we're trying to figure things out. We don't have the whole picture yet. Um, but more clearly to your question, I think that we did see a valuation of open space, of, of outdoor recreation is right now at peak value. People really appreciate it. They really understand it because they couldn't go to the gyms. They couldn't go to restaurants. They couldn't do the things that they usually do. They, they got outside. People went outside in record numbers. And hopefully they learned to appreciate those outside spaces and contribute. Um, of course, there is the risk that hordes of people descend on our national parks and don't give anything back and don't pay any money and they get trashed. So that's, that's one possibility that we're choosing our own adventure in a way. Um, but on, on a positive note, I think people really value being outside open places right now in a way that they haven't for a very long time. And um, now we have to wait and see kind of how that translates um, into what does conservation look like going forward? Are people more interested? Are they taking it for granted? Um, but certainly I think COVID and, and the events of the last year and a half shuffled up the deck and everybody's thinking in new ways now. Um, my land trust just barely got back to public events this month. So that's new. And we're seeing kind of a mixed interest fundraising also, you know, a bit mixed volunteerism. We don't know yet. So when I say the jury's still out and we're still kind of waiting for all the, all the data to come in, I haven't had a volunteer event in months and months. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that shapes up. And then on the big picture, when you say how the earth repaired itself, I think we had a unique opportunity in 2020 to see what does air quality look like without millions of cars on the road, right? What, what do our cities look like when the parking spaces become restaurants, you know? And that's really kind of cool. And I, I know for a fact that there are people that are thinking about how do we make some of those changes permanent? I hope that more people will think that way. How do we get the cars off the road so we can all have cleaner skies? How do we get to all electric vehicles so that the roads aren't so loud, right? Can you imagine a quiet highway, right? We sort of had that in COVID a little bit, right? But we're sort of throttling right back to where we were, you know, pre-COVID, cars on the road, a lot of, lot of um, you know, back to air pollution, back to noise pollution. Um, and so we have to address that. And then, of course, the other thing that needs to be said is there is a lot of trash that needs to get picked up because in 2020, we weren't out there cleaning things. We weren't, we weren't out there with volunteers, you know, picking up litter. And so we have a little bit of a deficit, certainly to make up for, but we also have some real opportunities, I think, to make uh, fundamental change if we can find the political and social will to do it. I wonder what your thought is on, I don't know, maybe ways to keep people's energy sustained. So when I think about why people haven't paid attention to it for so long, I mean, listen, we're not talking about climate change right now, but 
we are talking about an integral part of it. So if we talk about it at large, right, climate change and the environment, these are all things that have been well-known and talked about for a long time. We know it's important, but for some reason, our attention span is basically Earth Day, <laughs> you know? And, and then it's like, well, it'll be fine. So again, let me wrap this into my opinion. My opinion is, is that our minds are short-sighted. So we don't necessarily, we, the collective public, don't think it's going to go to ashes within our lifetime. Therefore, why would we spend our lifetime on it? So that's kind of a really rambling two-part question. One, do you have thoughts on how we can sustain the energy that people have towards being outside and caring about these things? And yeah, no, that's um these are these are big issues and um sometimes they get overwhelming. If I had the silver bullet to get everybody to be more environmentally conscious, I would use it. Um I try every day to let people know uh, what their impacts on the environment are, uh, when I can, when there's a teachable moment. But mostly I focus on my actions. I, I try to have the smallest environmental footprint that I can. I try to live as sustainably as I can. And I had a professor in college that um, ha- gave me some very good advice. And unfortunately, it was, it, was a, a story, it was a story of good coming up from bad. He had a student previously that had committed suicide because he just couldn't deal with the burden of his ecological education. It's a very hard thing to learn that we're all changing the climate, that we're causing fires and storms and temperature change and species extinction. The jury, the jury is not out. 99% of scientists say climate change is real, it's human-caused, and we are inducing the sixth largest the sixth extinction spasm, one of the largest periods of extinction in the history of the planet, and we're doing it to all the other species. And sometimes that is downright depressing. And in some cases, um, like this student at Evergreen, uh, he just couldn't handle it. And he got into drugs, he got into alcohol, he became really depressed, and he took his life. And my professor's advice was, I wish if I could talk to him now, I would tell him, just go plant a tree. And I have tried to take that advice to heart because at some level, you can only control your own actions. And and those actions can sometimes be just as simple as planting a tree uh, or, or composting your kitchen waste or finding out how to properly recycle your batteries and your light bulbs. Sometimes it's the really simple things. And I think most people, you have to meet them where they are. And uh, most people are ready to do the simple things. But we are not, at least we don't appear to be ready as a country and as a, as a globe to tackle climate change as a community. I, I think we're, it's better. It's better than it was. Um, we're starting to take it more seriously, but at some level, I think it just it comes down to personal responsibility and the actions that you can control, trying to do better in your day to day life. You know, when you know better, you do better. And, and that's, that has to be kind of the, the daily mantra. I think we forget that there's simple, simple things, like you said. So, for example, the big thing was like the straws, right? So people moving to straws they could take with them. But another simple thing that I think a lot of people do now is, for example, instead of getting water bottles, getting the metallic cooling bottles that you can refill and refill and refill, or a Brita pitcher, or 
because what I did see was a lot of disposable stuff happen again um, during 2020 when really you could just get a Brita and save yourself all that money and, and, and waste. And so sometimes just having that shift, I think makes a difference. Um, I wanted to talk to you about land really quickly. Um, just kind of a, a slightly one off, but maybe you'll have an idea. So you're talking about private conservation and my question is, there's been a big hoopla lately made about Bill Gates buying up so much land. Do you have any idea if that's what he's doing with it or what he's doing with it? Because right now I've heard a lot of conspiracy theories, but I've just been curious as to if he's in on that conservation, if that's part of that, or if you have any idea at all anyway. Yeah, well, I, I don't know anything about Bill Gates specifically. Um, if he is conserving land, then I think that's fantastic. Uh, Ted Turner is really the, the guy who comes to mind. He's, he's a huge conservationist. I think maybe the single largest private landowner in the U.S. Um, but his, he's got a massive amount of acreage put into conservation. And, um, does, does, is there a certain level of, of self-fulfillment there where he wants to go hunt, you know, buffalo on his own ranch? Yes. But, Ultimately, having that land saved from from the bulldozer and the paving machines is a benefit to the environment. So I, I encourage anybody that's doing private conservation. Um, I even have folks here call me occasionally and they say, we're, we're retired biologists. We have a beautiful creek in our backyard. And can you help us save it so that when we die, the next owners don't you know ruin this place? And there are tools for that and people caring enough to save their humble acre in the backyard, um, that all matters a great deal. So if Bill Gates is doing that, more power to him. Um, I, I would like to see land conservation incentivized in the tax code even more. I think it would be an amazing way to say, hey, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk that have more money than they could ever possibly spend, um, get your tax write-off by saving land. And we're starting to see that a little bit in here in California. Governor Newsom has the 30 by 30 program where he's he's set a goal to conserve 30 percent of the state's land by 2030. Uh, the Biden administration is talking about similar type goals. 30 percent of the United States set aside for open space. That's that's ambitious. That's impactful. And it's going to require every piece of the puzzle to come together. Public conservation, private conservation. All of the things you're talking about. So, so I, sure, you know, if individuals can be incentivized to save land and they can do it correctly, that's a good thing. Conservation land and energy. What are the ways that those two work together? And are there any challenges, I'll say? Huge challenges. Um, let, me, let me be timely about this. Right now in California, I think I can safely say that we're leading the way in renewable energy development. Um, I, I could be wrong, but you know, California is certainly at the front of the pack, if not number one in the U.S. in terms of solar, wind, um, desalinization for drinking water. I mean, just incredible uh, things. The things that we actually want to see to address climate change, to get to a more sustainable economy, not a fossil fuel-based economy. California is, is making huge strides in that direction. But all that said, none of these things are problem free. Um, for instance, you put wind farms in the desert where it's windy and 
the cities are not there. The cities are not in the desert where it's windy. They're at the coast. And so if you look at the map of California, all the cities are on the coast, really, with the, with some exceptions like Sacramento, Fresno, and Bakersfield, San Francisco, San Jose, LA, San Diego, all coastal development. Uh, I think half of our population lives within 50 miles of the coast. But the windmills are all in Palm Springs and Altamont and Anza Borrego, and they're not where the people live. So you're generating, you're taking land to generate power, which has all its own impacts. Then you've got to build these massive transmission lines to get the energy from where it's being generated, usually in the desert, to where the people are in the city. And that creates an enormous uh, amount of problems because actually, in terms of land use, we're compounding our issue. Because if we say, well, you know, we got to build up instead of out, we need the development to infill in the cities and stay concentrated in developed areas so we don't sprawl out into the country. Well, that's a great solution. We do need urban growth limits so we don't eat up all our, our wild lands. Um, but then if you put the energy development, solar farms and wind farms in the desert, and you build these transmission lines, you haven't really solved the problem of urban development. You've just kind of leapfrogged it. And so we've got desert tortoise habitat. We've got kangaroo rats that are endangered. Those are the ones that are being affected by solar farms. You know, bald eagles and, and hawks uh, are getting killed by these windmills. So, you know, none of this is problem free. And yet I can't help but, but remark that we're sort of missing the mark on this, that solar panels should go on the roofs where people already live. You know, and it's, I can't be the only person thinking that. In fact, I know I'm not, but it's just easier, it seems, for people to get their permits, to go through the regulatory process of putting this stuff on virgin land. And that's a problem. It's one we have to shift uh, to generate energy closer to where we live. And that will minimize a huge amount of the land use impacts that we're seeing. Okay. I'm getting actually really excited about this. Because it's an obvious thing, but in all the conversations that we've had among all types of diversity-related topics, the one thing, Nina, correct me if you're getting this too, that is a repeat on every single topic is that is little things, grassroots, solar panel on your house, garden in your yard, you know, just doing the little things. Because when we try to do the big grand things, it's causing additional problems. Just like because we haven't shifted the fundamental concept of what we're doing, people get lost in the shuffle, right? So when you are starting at such a cellular level, there is a more ownership, frankly, of what you're doing and more collaboration and more community build. And then that seems to help navigate through some of the problems when as opposed to when you try to implement things on such a widespread level that you haven't worked out the lower kinks yet. I agree. I agree with everything that you're both saying. Um, you know, it, it, all these levels matter, uh, but it has to start at the cellular level. I'm so glad you used the word community because from the individual level, it then has to move up to the community level. I mean, you really have to start with yourself. Take a look at yourself and your own actions, right? Am I wasting 40% of my food, like the average American. Well, that's a problem, you know? Do I still waste food? Sometimes, yes, and it drives me nuts, you know? I hate wasting food, but I don't waste 40% of my food. 
and all of my food waste gets composted in my yard or fed to my worms in the worm bin, you know. So, so those little things kind of add up to my own self, taking ownership over myself. From there, it goes to your family unit, you know, or your roommates if they're your family unit, and, and then to your community. You got to start engaging the people around you, your friends, your neighbors, uh, local businesses, and 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 at some level, it keeps trickling up to the local government state government, um, and then hopefully eventually the federal government and this the whole country kind of getting on board. I know we're kind of focused on the United States right now, but some of these problems are really going to require global solutions. And I think we have to think about this going from the individual level and then magnifying all the way up to the global level where we all get real serious about addressing some of these concerns. I think that's true because, and I keep going back to 2020, but the Brazilian forest, the Amazon rainforest fires really kind of helped focus everyone's energy on Brazil for a minute, because the whole world was concerned at that point, even though the political control was focused in one area. And I thought that was enlightening. Absolutely. I mean, more and more, we all see that we're connected. You know, not nobody lives in a bubble. Um, Maybe, maybe, the uncontacted tribes in the Amazon rainforest live in a bubble. But you're talking about fires uh, that are generally started from logging operations that are destroying their habitat. And and these people are not uncontacted anymore. They're, they're being encroached by the world. We all share the same air. We all share the same water. We all share the same planet. And I don't know what it's going to take for all of us to sort of congeal as as a human community, um, but we're getting there. Whatever your thoughts on globalism and, and the global economy, um, I think more today than any time in my lifetime, we look at each other as a global community. I can be in touch with my friends on the other side of the planet right now. And it wasn't like that when I was a kid, right? And I can, I can you know, I don't know anybody in Brazil currently, but I'm sure friends of friends are there and I could ask them, hey, what's going on with the fires, you know, or hey, what's going on with COVID? Um, so, so getting our, be, building a global community is, is going to help us address that. And I think we all see that now, that we share these resources, that we share the planet and that we're all the same. And that plays out on so many levels. When we start to build that human community, then you can find acceptance for all the variations of humanity. And all, that leads you into accepting other non-human biodiversity too. We, we have a responsibility to protect it all. Uh, I am my brother's keeper, right? That's the saying. That goes for your fellow man and woman, as well as, as the creatures that, that live around you. And for me, for my part, you know, I, I, I want to make sure we have all the cool creatures too, not just the ones that live in the cities, right? Not just pigeons and rats and raccoons. I mean, they have their place too. Um, and not just the big charismatic ones like giraffes and rhinos and polar bears, um, but all the ones in between. I think we have a responsibility to carry through every possible species that we can through this this bottleneck, as they say, this coming extinction, um, because we don't know. We don't know which ones are going to be adapted. Uh, it might not be us, but something will figure out how to live in a world that is irreversibly changed, however we come out from this. And the best and the simplest answer to addressing the big issues of our time are to give as many species a chance as possible to adapt to it and figure it out. Okay. I just want to point out that you just called 
polar bears charismatic? Of course they are. I, I mean, according they're cute, to Coca-Cola. Are they kind of rough? <laughs> it's what we call charismatic megafauna. Everybody has a, <laughs> it's so easy to care about panda bears because they're cuddly and they're wonderful. But dung beetles are just as important. And they, without them, uh, you know, there's this, uh, I always tell uh, kids when I take them on field trips that uh, if you have a thread that's loose on your sweater uh, and you start pulling it out, it's not long until you don't have a sweater. You know, it's just going to keep unraveling until you get in there and, and darn that thing back up. And that's the world we live in. That's the ecological tapestry of the world is a sweater. And unfortunately, right now we have a lot of fray yarn, frayed yarn, and, and we're kind of pulling, pulling at it, thinking it's going to solve the problem. Um, but we have to start caring about all the things. And, and polar bears are awesome. They really are. And they get people excited. Uh, my daughter loves rhinos. That's her favorite animal. But we were just at the zoo in San Diego here uh, last this past weekend. And it turns out that giraffes are endangered now. How sad is that? You know? And it's easy to care about them. But also, you know, we have to care about the butterflies and and the the bees right you guys you know you know the bees are in trouble right now and um that stuff matters uh, we all those things and there's not okay so now that i'm on the bee thing let me just throw out this cool fact there's one species of european honeybee that are not even native to north america they were brought over from europe right those are the ones that we get all concerned about we got to save the bees everybody's talking about european honeybees we have in california alone 4000 species of native bees and you hardly ever hear any talk about them because they're deeply misunderstood a lot of them are solitary bees they live alone uh most of them are ground nesting bees so they don't make the big honeycombs or anything um four thousand species of native bees we have to find the bandwidth the compassion the community to care about all of those species that's how we're going to get through all oh my god so I, I, I'm not a fan of bees, but I am a fan of bees. So <laughs> I have apophobia, so I'm terrified of stinging objects, but I had no idea that there was so many types of bees and, and you're right. There's certain animals that get good press, right? Um, like what you were talking about before, we want to kind of take an opportunity in these last few minutes to talk about your degree in political ecology. So a lot of what you're saying has a geopolitical context to it. And for example, we have been focused on the United States, but for example, in Iowa, where I'm at, it would be ethanol and corn and those aspects. How do you, what's your concept of our ignorance in general of geopolitical politics and how that affects us and how we can educate ourselves in an, you know, a relatively quick, easy fashion? Uh, well, good question. I think the short answer is there is no quick, easy fashion. Um, I, 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 it takes time. It takes dedication. Um, one thing that I have learned from travel is that the rest of the world is much more connected than fortress America. I mean, we live on our own continent, literally behind walls and um we kind of keep to ourselves you know we we rarely hear the news from the rest of the world unless it's monumental news or some kind of major groundbreaking thing um but when you go to the rest of the world they're hearing about other countries every day they're speaking different languages every day they are immersed in other cultures and differences and is that without friction no of course not there's there's friction 
Um, other countries uh, like France, like Scandinavia, like Italy, they've been grappling with, with immigrant issues and refugee issues. A lot of those are being climate refugees, which we're going to see more and more of. Um, so it's not without its friction, but I, I think we could all do with uh, some more world news. I think we could all do with having some friends from other countries, other cultures, people that, that think about the world completely differently than we do. And once we kind of get out of our own little bubble, that's going to help solve a lot of problems that we have because other people are not different. Other people are mostly the same. And, and you know, some of that is, is a bit tragic. I think I was probably born, you know, 100 years too late where you had to sail around to these really exotic places and, you know, it took months and months to travel there. So the world is a little bit more homogenous now. But the upside to that is we all know each other. You can get on Facebook and talk to your friend in Tajikistan and it's not a problem, right? I mean, we do sort of live in the Jetsons uh, that we were picturing when we were kids. And we're on the face, FaceTime right now while we're talking, you know, um, and, and folks can just tune in and listen to this whenever they want anywhere in the world. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. But we have to keep reaching across the borders, right? You know, from Iowa, for instance, you brought up ethanol and fuel. Um, you got to have a market for that, right? So Iowa has to sell all that fuel to somebody. I, you're competing against the fossil fuel producers in the OPEC countries. And so it's instantly a world issue. Uh, where I got really turned on to this was uh, studying abroad as an undergrad and seeing at Lake Baikal in Siberia that Russia owned the lake. But just within Russia, they had three different provincial governments that managed different portions of the lake. The watershed started at a lake in Mongolia and eventually flowed down across the Russian border into Baikal and then out to the Arctic Ocean. There was no way for them to keep that lake clean without addressing the upstream issues. And addressing the upstream issues meant talking to the nation where the water came from. The reason Tahoe Baikal Institute got organized, among a bunch of reasons, part of it was intercultural exchange, but it's a very similar arrangement to Lake Baikal. There's a state line down the middle of Lake Tahoe, half the lakes in California and half the lakes in Nevada. Uh, in addition to that, there are five different local jurisdictions, five different counties, one incorporated city. Uh, how do you manage a lake when you've got five different counties, two different states making decisions about it. What in the case of Tahoe, what happened was the federal government actually came in and created congressional oversight. And, and I don't want to get too wonky on the politics side, but there is a congressionally funded, mandated management agency. It's called the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, TRPA, that is the federal jurisdiction managing Lake Tahoe. Most people don't know that. But it was the only way that they could get California and Nevada and all these county governments to agree because Nevada wanted casinos, uh, you know, up and down the whole side of the lake. And California wanted nature and, you know, peace and quiet so people could go on vacation. And still to this day, I think that state line Nevada is the only state line in the country I've seen that, you know, is a wall of glass. And you say, where's Nevada? It's right there. It's a casino. And, and so how do you get these two states to cooperate with each other, which they weren't doing and the lake was suffering? You have to get involved in political ecology. You have to start talking to each other. You have to reach across boundaries 
and, and jurisdictional borders and cultural borders. And you've got to start managing these resources the way that nature intended, not the way that humans draw lines on maps. So that's my thinking in terms of interculturalism and sort of the, the, the global context of it. You know, we have this opportunity to live as a world community, but it starts with reaching out, you know, across, across the aisle, across the borders in your own community. Yeah, that's a really good example of why collaboration and open-mindedness are so important because otherwise we start fighting about everything. So this is going to be like a really broad, open question, but is there anything that you're particularly passionate about that we didn't ask that you wanted to share? Wow. Um, that is a very open-ended question. You know, I, I, I think that there, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm passionate about. You know, I touched on a few of them. I think, I think minimizing waste streams, minimizing consumption, I think it's a huge thing. I think we all need a lot less stuff. That's, that's a, that will go so far in addressing so many problems. Um, but, but one thing I can plug that probably none of your other guests will plug is native habitat native habitat. It's not something I ever paid attention to when I was younger. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the forest, but when I was a kid, I couldn't tell you that's a pine, that's a fir, that's a spruce, that's a hemlock. Um, here, I, I know that stuff. I learn the names of all the plants. I want to call them by their proper name. I want to know what that plant is versus this plant. Does it belong here or does it, did it come later? You know, when, when did this plant arrive? Has it co-evolved with the other plants for thousands of years? Or did it just get here with the Spanish 250 years ago? Or did it just get here a couple of weeks ago on a crate from China? This stuff matters. And when you plant your landscape at your house, uh, for instance, before I moved to California, I thought palm trees, right? You guys probably think, oh, LA is palm trees, San Diego is palm trees. Uh, when I first got here, I remember thinking eucalyptus trees. That defines California. There's so many eucalyptus trees and they smell great and they, they sort of define California. They do, but their eucalyptus are just so obviously from Australia and, um, we don't have koalas here that eat them. Um, so what we end up with is a bunch of trees that don't belong here that completely change the habitat conditions, uh, and oftentimes make the fire hazard worse. Palm trees are incredibly fire prone. And so at some level, um, you know, I think we have to adapt to where we live. Uh, most of the people that live in California, at least most of the people that I know, plant their yard with things that come from someplace else. You, you look at a magazine and you say, I want those plants from Sunset Magazine. And your landscape ends up being from Australia, from Africa, from Southeast Asia. Those are not California plants. And, and I think if we could really highlight our native habitat, the things that were here for the longest time, that had the deepest relationships to this ecology. And this can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be California. There are species in New England that are native and species that were brought from, from elsewhere. And um, I think if we start to focus on what's native to our area and, and what really belongs there, with some exceptions, obviously. I mean, sometimes I plant flowers that are beautiful and I like them because they're beautiful. I appreciate them. Food crops are very different. I mean, wild tomatoes don't grow where most of us live, but I still like to eat tomatoes. Um, you know, so there are some exceptions. We have to eat. We have to be nourished with beauty and food and, and we have to find our balance there. But for the most part, I'd like to encourage everybody 
who's listening to this to think about the native conditions around where you are. What plants have been there and animals have been there the longest time and how to help them to do well and enhance your microculture, your, your hyper-localism of what is supposed to grow here um, and, and try to reintroduce a little bit more of that, uh, that history and that original biodiversity to your place. Cool. So, okay. Final three questions. This one's also random, but uh, it's okay. It won't be as hard. What are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Okay. Is this a lightning round? I have to go quickly. It's not a trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Five words to describe myself. Goodness. You know, I. All right. I'll give you it. I have a a thought or a question actually to give you some time to think about yourself. (laughs) What? So you're talking about kind of getting our us and our audience to become more familiar with their native bio culture. Where would they look for information like that? Is there some general websites where they can go or, you know, where can they, you know, I mean, besides a Google search, I'm thinking how I would Google search that and I'm not really coming up with it. So can you help kind of give us a glance to how I would look into that? Yeah, that's great. And I I wish it was as simple as, you know, check this website, but um, let me, let me give you an, an equally simple answer, which is go outside and ask yourself if you know the names of the things that you're looking at. And just start from there. If you have a tree in the front yard, what kind of tree is it? If you if you walk down the street and you're smelling flowers or you're looking at flowers that are in bloom, what are they? And I find that that is the simplest place to begin. What is the proper name for these living things that surround me? Not just people, not just pets, not just the names of stores or the brands and the logos that you know people know. Um, but what are the names of the things around me? And uh, I find young people actually kind of gobble that stuff up. Kid, kids uh, nowadays, you know, know more corporate logos than plants that live in their community. And I think we can, I think we can switch that. I try very hard to change that um, by, by teaching just the names of the plants that are around you, right? Um, and then, and then from there you can start to learn, like learning a person. The first thing you learn is their name typically, and then you learn about them as an individual. Plants are not different. When you learn the name of a plant, you start to have an intimate relationship with it. You start to understand, oh, this grows in these conditions, or this is dormant right now because it's the dry season, or, oh, I know that plant's going to flower around this time, or I should harvest it at this time. You start to learn the uses of things. You start to learn the history of things. But it starts with the name. What is the name of this thing? Uh, I cannot imagine having a relationship with a human being go on for very long and not knowing what that person was called. But we do it with plants and animals all the time. So it starts with what is the name of this thing? And right now we're having a, a really deep conversation, I think, in the California Native Plant Society world about what were these plants called before white European men named them? What did the hundreds of tribes that lived here call them? And that is a whole other sort of cultural reckoning that we're starting to come around to. And there's no easy answers there, but people had names for these things before they were called Latin names. And, and we have to do some justice in, in learning those too. But it starts with the name. What is the name of this thing? Well, we saw that with Alaska and Denali and McKinley. Yes. You're right. 
Yes, and we're we're having we're having a um, conversation right now in San Diego. We have a peak called Cuyamaca, and that is that is. Uh, oh no, sorry. The Cuyamaca State Park has a peak in it called Stonewall Peak, and I had always thought that it was called Stonewall because one side is a big rocky you know, escarpment. It's a stone wall when you drive up to it. Turns out it's actually named after Stonewall Jackson. And so we've got this weird sort of Southern Confederate, you know, memorial at the top of this peak. And a lot of folks are not happy about that. So the same as you mentioned Denali kind of catching up, right? Uh, we have a lot of catching up to do with these other peaks, even locally here. And, and it turns out that the Kumeyaay people, the original indigenous people here, called it, I think, Kushipi. And so now it's like, okay, well, how do we move from Stonewall to Kushipi or something else in the, in the you know, a totally new thing, right? Um, Mount Rainier, still called Mount Rainier National Park, but was Tahoma. And we kind of find our way back to that uh, if we want to. But of course, some of the new names are going to, are going to be here to stick. Tahoe, I think, is an excellent story. Tahoe is a success because in the Washoe language, Tahoe means at the lake. Da'o is what they called it. And they would go Da'o Aga, to the lake. They would go up the mountains in the summertime to the lake, Da'o. But, but when, when it was discovered by Europeans, they named it Lake Bigler after the government of California, the governor of California. And how lucky are we today that we get to say Da'o instead of Bigler. I'm going up to Lake Bigler. It just wouldn't have the charm that it has. So, so that's a success. Um, and of course on the East coast, I always think that, you know, there's a lot of place names that are named after indigenous things, right? Nashua is an indigenous name. It means Rocky bottom river. And that name still exists today. It's a city. It's a river. It's still there. The connection through the name to the history, to the place, it's all there. Um, and in some cases we have to find our way back to these names or find new and better names. Uh, like we did with Denali. Quick tip going back to um, the plant identification. Their Google Lens, I just learned this, you can actually take a picture. So as you mentioned, if you're walking down the street, you can actually take a picture and it'll tell you what it is, like the leaf of the plant. And then if you're interested, you can dig down and find out how it lives. So it's kind of a cool tool and it's free. Yeah, that's a good one. I meant to mention that um, there are several plant apps, like there's one called Seek. Um, iNaturalist is, is really well, um, trusted one. The, the caveat with all these plant ID apps is, uh, don't trust them. You get multiple sources, right? Because some of them can be really off in their identification. So, so it's, uh, you know, just like, just like picking your news up, don't just get it all from one place, you know, check a couple of sources, uh, do, do your homework, um, uh, before you settle on it. Cause I've seen some of those apps are really can be quite off. But some of them are, are pretty accurate. And so, yeah, start start with that. If you don't know what they are, snap a picture, figure it out. Trust but verify. Time to think about Are you ready to label yourself? I got, I got five <laughs> words for you. Are you. Do you know Crosby, Stills, and Nash? Yes. Okay, so here are my five words. Stardust, billion-year-old carbon. <laughs> That's me. Okay, that's got to be the most random answer we've gotten yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you go back, go listen to CSNY, right? Woodstock. <laughs> it's We are stardust. We are a billion-year-old carbon. And I try to remember that every single day. It's so fitting for this, though. So it, 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 it was random, but how you tied that in. I 
All right. And then the, the last thing is, did you want to um, tell our guests how they can connect with you or what website you'd like them to go to to learn more? Sure. Yeah. Um, backcountrylandtrust.org. We also have Facebook and Instagram for Backcountry Land Trust and for Wright's Field in Alpine, which is the nature preserve that I manage here in town. Um, so you can find us on all the social media sites, except for Twitter. We don't have a Twitter. Uh, but we have Facebook and Instagram, and you can check out our website, backcountrylandtrust.org. We are a membership-based organization, so we take donations, volunteers, any anything you want to send our way, give us a shout-out. Um, yeah, we need the support. It's, we are a community-based effort. Um, and then, of course, I think everybody should look up biodiversity in San Diego County. So my plug just for your theme uh, of biodiversity San Diego County is the most biodiverse county in the lower 48 states. We have more variety of species here than any other place in the U.S. And and that matters a great deal. Not only do a lot of people not know that factoid, but the creatures that live here are incredible. We have tons of different stuff. And this is the canary in the coal mine for biodiversity. If we can get it right here, we can get it right in other places. If we screw it up here then we've got real problems. So keep an eye in terms of biodiversity on what's happening in San Diego. It's a hot spot. Cool. That's super cool. I didn't know that. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure talking to you both. Thank you so much for listening in to another episode of Diversity on Fire. Please check out the show notes. You'll find all the links that uh, John mentioned and support your local conservation efforts. Get curious. Find out what those plants are in your yard. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. If you're enjoying the show, we would very much appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode, and please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. Humans are intrinsically tied up with land. 